I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, of course, I'm going to talk about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And so that's what we're going to do. So, yeah, I was going to watch Jingle Jangle and I still haven't because it's a musical and I am persnickety. And it's not because I don't want to watch. Well, it I don't want to watch it. I will, I just haven't watched it. I'm, I'm annoying. Um, but I hope you do, because if you like musicals, this is a two hour one. Um, so enjoy. And maybe one of these days I'll grow up and I'll just speed past the musicals and get through it. But I haven't been able to. Um, but instead, it's just not my cup of tea. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, as much as I want to support and I do support black filmmakers and and sing and writers and all of that stuff and artists. I don't. Musicals aren't my thing. Gosh. Anyway. Um, but anyway, so but there were awesome things that happened last week before I released the episode that I wanted to mention before I got away with it. I just felt guilty about not watching Jingle Jangle after having said that I was going to do it. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, so a very exciting thing for me. Um, and not many people, even in real life, know this about me. My husband knows. Um, and I, my parents know, but I don't know that I don't think they understand the extent to which I'm actually a very, in my own way, I am a huge baseball fan. Now, I don't necessarily follow the races. I am a fickle fan of all sporting activities because at the end of the day, um, I can root for whomever I want, which means my allegiances can change in the middle of the game if I want, um, because I have to pay to see y'all. That's, how, that's my philosophy. That's how I feel. I can root for whom, what, <laughs> whomever I want, whenever I want. And so anyway... But I have always enjoyed the game of baseball, always enjoyed it. If I'm being 100% honest, it has nothing to do with the game itself in so much as its sound and the cadence and the pace. That's what I've always enjoyed since a little girl. I, I think I've shared, I know I've shared um, at some point over the three years that I've been um, podcasting, that I uh, listen to ASMR or I watch ASMR videos. And I can remember when I was a child being, getting a tingling sensation and, and Google ASMR. At this point, everybody should know what that is. Even if you don't experience the euphoric tingles that some people experience when you listen to ASMR. Um, but yeah, I've always had, I've always experienced those tingles. So and this is kind of, t- it, it might sound gross or whatever, but like I'd be in class and there'd be a kid behind me and you know, in those, the, those desks that have the seats attached to them. And anyway, and you know how in school, in the rows that you're in, they tend to be kind of close, not a whole lot of walking room, um, except for somebody who's smaller, a little bit younger or whatever. Um, and so anyway, I had invariably in any given class, I invariably have somebody behind me that had gum in their mouth and they would chew it like they would chew it loudly. Um, And I was always relaxed by that. I never I was I wasn't the person that was going to turn around and say, girl, if you don't stop doing that, chewing like you a cow or whatever. 
that wasn't me, I'd be like, okay, cool. Well, this is relaxing because I, you know, eight hours in school, seven hours, whatever, that's a work day. Um, and getting up early in the morning to do all of the things and that's work, which is a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day. But anyway, it was very relaxing to hear, um, my classmates behind me chew disrespectfully. Um, and invariably the teacher would come by and be like, if you don't spit this stuff out and call it a day. Um, but nevertheless, I, I felt like that was, um, calming. And then also, um, y'all remember those dot matrix? Well, some of you, and I'm dating myself, but some of you remember dot matrix printers. Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. I know that based on the demographics of the people who listen to this show, there's several of you who do not. Um, but anyway, they made dot matrix printers made this particular sound. And in essence, it kind of sounded like my alarm. Um, and it was not pleasant. But every time I would walk into our school's front office for something, because I was always allowed to roam free because I was always a good child. Um, but nevertheless, good child. I wasn't really good. I just knew how to, <laughs> I knew how to play the game. Um, anyway, um, whole nother conversation for a whole nother day. Um, anyway, but I would go to the office for various tasks or what have you. Um, and I'd be at the front and I can remember one distinct time that the dot matrix was being printed off. And, and, and let me just say, let me give you a visual. So if you don't know what the heck I'm talking about, dot matrix was a type of printer. It was like an early type of printer back in, um, that people had held on to for years after there were upgrades, but because it was the school system, especially the, the American school system, in many cases, public at that, um, you know, uh, equipment was not state of the art. And so this, this dot matrix was probably from the early nineties, the point at which I was remember the point at which I, uh, the, the story I'm about to describe, I was in high school. So there definitely were better printers out. It's just the district wasn't fit to pay for it. Anyhow. So we had a dot matrix, um, and they were loud and they sounded like an alarm, but not the red alert alarm that you can get on most phones these days. It was just a type of alarm that was unpleasant, but was designed to get your tail up um, in the morning. And I can remember my alarm in high school was that alarm. It wasn't, again, not red alert, but it was definitely, my alarm sounded like the dot matrix printer. Um, and it's like, ee, 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 but not the backup of, of a vehicle, but Anyway, that's the best way I can describe it. And I bet you some nerd, and I'm using that term like I'm not one. But anyway, (laughs) I know some nerd has put the sound of a dot matrix on YouTube. I bet you you can Google it today. I bet you you can Google it. Um, Anyhow, so I can remember walking up to the front uh, front office because our high school was essentially one level. We didn't have floors. We had it was was, yeah, it was like it was all on one level. It was just long. And so I walked up to the front desk, um, the front office, and I was standing there waiting on something. I had asked somebody, whoever was, was tending at the time, I asked them for something and they had stepped away to go get it. But in the meantime, they were printing on the dot matrix. They were printing out something. Um, and I can remember hearing that noise and the noise making me feel as if I was waking up again. That's the best way I can describe it. Because... The only time my alarm went off 
it's not as if I was waking myself up or if I was waking myself up, which has been a habit these for years in my life that I would always wake myself up about five minutes before my alarm because I did not want my alarm to go off. That's how my body works. Um, If I set an alarm, invariably, unless I'm dog tired and I've gotten very little sleep, I always, without fail, wake up five minutes before. And, you know, welcome to the show if this is your first time listening to it. I do ramble. I get back to the point, but I do ramble. Um, Anyway, so I can, I, I always wake up. Since I can remember, I've always woken up at least five minutes before my alarm because I didn't like to be woken up by my alarm. And it's a psychological thing, I guess. Anyhow, and so when I was in the front office waiting for that thing that I had come for, the printer was going off and I got this feeling in my body like I was waking up again. And I was just like, oh, this is weird. Um, Something like deja vu of a a memory. Um, But yeah, it felt like I was waking up again. I was like, okay, well, I had to kind of get myself together because it was like, you know how when you you're awake, but you're not really awake. Um, So you you have to stir, you give your body some time to move and you're, you know, you still have to wake yourself up. And in many cases, you have to splash for for me, I have to splash water on my face to really get out to really wake up. And so um, I got myself together as best I could to wait for the thing, got the thing that I had come for. And then I immediately went to the restroom and I um, yeah, put splash water on my face to get myself together um, because it was that. And I don't know, maybe I'm just a dramatic person, which I do not put past myself. That is, I'm not ruling that out. But nevertheless, I just remember experiencing that feeling. And so flash forward a decade later, almost, um, and I am introduced to ASMR through like some some um, radio show on NPR, uh, This American Life, some series. And then I'm like, oh, and so that's why I like baseball games. Because the crack of the baseball and the, the distant roar and, and excitement from the crowd is very soothing for me. It almost feels like ASMR, except it's a little bit louder because when people start hollering in your section, it's like, okay, well, you you killing, you, you killing the mood. But I, lo- I enjoy the pacing of the game. It's not too fast. It's not too slow for me. Um, and I like the sounds and the visuals. It's visually appealing to me. It's sonically appealing to me first. Then you start to get to know the players and things like that. And you start to, you start to pay attention to how difficult it is to actually hit a ball out of the park, how difficult it is to actually catch a fly ball, um, how much distance there is between first and second base, um, and how difficult it might be to, to time it just so that you strike one person out by, you get one person out by virtue of you having the ball in your hand, but you tapped your toe on the base and then throwing it with precision to the next base in order to get the next person out. That's, that, that's, that's a skill that you need to acquire. Some people are born with athletic ability, but you still need to hone that ability in order to do a task. And I know that you can do that, you, that, that is true in any sport, but I just appreciate baseball for its sound and the ability for the folks to perform. Now that said, I am fickle. Um, and if the Orioles are not performing, um, 
I'm not rooting for them. Even though I have their stickers and I have merchandise, I've never bought it. Um, any, any sports merchandise I have, it's not because I bought it. Um, I have though bought, um, hats and things for my husband because he's an avid, true, he is an actual fan. Um, and if I just may for one more moment before I move back, um, to talking about, to go into it, I remember, I, y'all know. Well, some of y'all do know, some of you do not because you're new to the show. I'm from the Kansas City area, uh, Kansas City, Missouri area. And so I grew up watching baseball, going to baseball games. I can't, I, I've always gone to baseball games, even though I've never been the biggest fan. Even, even when I was in high school, I still found my way to a baseball game outside of my parents taking me um, for one we- reason or the next. And so anyway, I've always been attached to baseball. And so I can remember in high school, maybe my junior year, my senior year, um, my band teacher, who is still by far one of my most favorite teachers ever, um, even though, no, not, it's not an even though, I just do want to have a con- an adult conversation with him about his, his um, interest in H.P. Lovecraft. Um, because knowing what I know now about H.P. Lovecraft, I want to have a conversation with him about him. But that's that's another. And I actually can because he's on Facebook and we're friends. Um, anyway, so but getting back to it, my band teacher took us on a trip um, to the uh, um, to basically to the arts district of Kansas City. Um, and it's 18th and Vine. And 18th and Vine has very a rich history. It's like 18th and Vine is like Pennsylvania Avenue here in Baltimore in that the history of it was redlining, right? Redlining has always been a thing in the United States. It's just, it was very pronounced um, in the, you know, in the times in which people were returning from the war. And then they had these, um, this money because of the GI Bill and all of this. And they were, they had this money and they had the ability to buy things, right? But they come back to their homes. I'm talking about black people. They come back to their homes or to their home cities and find that they can't live but in certain neighborhoods because of redlining. What we know is redlining. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. Anyway, so they start to move into these areas and like, okay, bet. There were always black people here, but we're about to move into these areas and droves and we're about to make this thing, we're about to make this thing hot. And so no surprise that these areas where black folk in the 40s and 50s and, and 30s were restricted to turned out to be cultural centers for black people and then just generally speaking culture in the city. And so what is true here in Baltimore with UB Blake and all of them off McCullough Street and, and Pennsylvania Avenue and all of that stuff, what is true for all of those talented musicians, Billie Holiday that found their way, uh, Ella Fitzgerald that found their way here in Baltimore and made and, and set root Cab Calloway. Everybody knows the cab, unfortunately, the Cab Calloway, um, being Baltimore native, but, um, his house was recently demolished, which was a doggone shame. Um, but anyway, it's no surprise that all those wonderful musicians, um, talented artists lived in and around Pennsylvania, McCullough, Pennsylvania Avenue in between, you know, over there by McCullough, off McCullough street and, and all of that, because that's where that's where they were relegated to. So if you, if greatness has got to stay in this one place, well, you know, a whole bunch of greatness is going to be in one. Um, and so 
what's true here in Baltimore on Pennsylvania Avenue is true in in Kansas City on 18th and Vine. 18th and Vine was jumping. There were whole movies. Um, There's a movie called Kansas City starring Lawrence Fishburne. And what's that white guy's name? Oh, there's a white... Ooh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Oh, shoot. Roth, Tim Roth. Um, it, it, Tim Roth is Meyer Lansky, and I forgot who uh, I forgot who Lawrence Fishburne was was playing. Um, but anyway, there's a whole movie about Kansas City, and you know they were on 18th and Vine. Um, there's actually a couple of movies out that are talking about that area because hey, you push black folks to a certain area, and that includes all of our uh, artistic folks. We start creating little communities, and you know. Start, it starts becoming the place. And so anyway, so we went to 18th and Vine. Now, mind you, just like all of those arts districts of in the heyday, um, their heyday waned due to the crack epidemic, loss of jobs. Actually, it started with the loss of jobs and then, of course, the influx of drugs um, from the... Uh, I, I think at this point, everybody kind of knows that the... Or at the least, I don't know if it's a widely accepted fact or not, but like everybody widely knows that drugs were pumped into the communities by the government. Um, or at the very least, they were allowed to be pumped in um, for one reason or the next uh, by the government in the 80s, 70s, late 70s and 80s. Like there, there were, they just weren't paying attention. Anyway, I'm not going to dispute why or, or philosophize about why. It's just is the situation that in the 80s, late 70s and 80s, we have losses of loss of jobs, loss of economic opportunity, and an influx of drugs, which it invites an influx of crime in these same arts district areas. And so 18th and Vine was, recent, was revitalized the last 20 years. Pennsylvania Avenue is slowly being re- revitalized here. And one of these days I'll talk more about it, but... Um, Anyway, but so my band teacher took us to this trip, this field trip on 18th and Vine. And we were primarily there because I think, did you take the whole band or just the jazz band? Anyway, but somehow or another, band kids, we were at, we were on 18th and Vine because of the, uh, we were going to the jazz museum. And, you know, Charlie Parker, everybody knows. I don't, I can't remember if Charlie Parker's from Kansas City or just spent a whole lot of time in Kansas City. Can't remember. Anyway, but we were at the Jazz Museum, which, by the way, when when we're able to move and shake and travel, please, please, sir, ma'am, non-binary friends, make your way to Kansas City, specifically for the Jazz Museum and this other thing that's connected right to it, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Which, again, we were there for jazz, but we also toured the baseball museum. And I got my life when I was there because at the end of the day, what I didn't recognize, what I don't, I didn't recognize and I feel ashamed of it now, is that I didn't realize that black folks had permeated baseball up until that point since baseball was a thing. We've been playing baseball since baseball was a thing. Um, but that rem- I, I didn't know about the, the Negro Leagues and the fact that there was these awesome people playing on these in these um, leagues um, because they weren't accepted into the major leagues, so they had to do what they had to do. And so this is when I first learned of you know Satchel Paige and and uh, Buck O'Neill, which Google Buck O'Neill, 
um, actually just Google because Josh Gibson, just Google them. Um, but anyway, that's where I first learned about them. Um, and I learned about the Kansas City Monarchs and how those players were just awesome. But like the MLB couldn't take them, um, couldn't take them in that in the, the modern context of it. Not that they just didn't have any room, but they're like, oh, my gosh, goodness, I'm sick and they're black and I just can't or whatever term that they used for them back then. I just, I'm just, mm -mm, I I can't take them. They're, they're beneath me messing around. And and you consider that some of those players were better than most of the players, um, by hands down in, in the MLB anyway. So I had, so what I, if I enjoyed the uh, baseball sonically before I went to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, I left that museum being a fan of the game itself. And then I started to understand a little bit more about the intricacies of why it's a big deal that somebody can pitch a no hitter, why it's an extremely big deal that a person can knock a ball out of the park almost every time, like almost every game. And sometimes multiple times in a game, how big of a feat that is. Um, how incredible it is for you to get uh, multiple people out in a single batting, right? Especially if bases are loaded. Um, anyway, and so that's, even though I'm a fickle fan, I still appreciate the sport in itself. And so anyway, this week, what I missed, um, or last week when I missed in my uh, uploading of the last episode, was the fact that the MLB finally, in 2020, recognized the Negro League's as part of the major leagues and why that's important, important apart from the obvious, like you had major leaguers that ultimately that, that were playing in uh, the Negro leagues that you certainly did utilize when they came over to MLB, Jackie Robinson being one of the most famous. Um, He played for the Kansas city Monarchs um, for the longest before um, he was uh, put in whatever team he was put on. Um, he was drafted to, um, anyway, but yeah, the, the MLB was full of major, uh, the MLB was full of Negro league superstars who had been superstars, but y'all, they were playing. Um, but the MLB was playing anyway. Um, so yeah, but the reason why this is important before I move on, cause I, at this point I didn't talked a, a good little minute about, um, myriad of topics. Anyway, um, is that there are still Negro leaguers alive today. Maybe they're not the best of the best, but but there are Negro leaguers who contributed a lot to the game of baseball who are alive today. And because they don't, they're not connected to the MLB or, or there, there are pensions coming to the widows of these um, players and the families of these players. Um, But because they're not connected to the MLB, there are no benefits, Right. Um, but now that with them connect, being connected to the MLB, the MLB recognized them as MLB leagues. Um, now those, those, uh, those, uh, Negro leaguers have access, uh, to pensions and things that they would have had access to all along if they were members of the MLB. So anyway, that's why that apart from the obvious that these, this, these leagues, should not have had to be created in the first place. You should have just allowed, you know, you should have admitted them into, not even admitted, you should have been drafting these folks. These these folks would have been drafted. Come on, these folks would have been drafted. The, Satchel Page was essentially the Brett Favre of, um, of baseball in his time. Satchel Page, nobody really knows how old Satchel Page was, 
but we know he lied about his age, same as a lot of, of athletes lie about their ages. Um, I mean, and lying about your age is not new in baseball anyway. Um, but Satchel Page was, and they believe that he was in his 40s pitching no hitters, pitching lights out. Um, and, you know, like we we make fun of, of, of uh, athletes in their 40s these days. Like, you about to wear yourself out. But like, it's, you know, if you still got it in the tank, you got it in the tank and, you know, you just do what you must do um, because you enjoy the game that you're playing. But anyway, so there's just so many, so many fabulous, awesome um, players that you should, everybody should just get to know. And so I'm hoping that with this announcement that there's more attention to all of those wonderful players, big and small coaches, Buck O'Neill was an awesome coach. Get to know him. Um, unfortunately, he didn't make it into the Hall of Fame until after his. he made it in there posthumously, which ain't that the way. Like, give them their flowers while they can smell them. Um, but anyway. But, um, yeah, so that's big news to me. It might not be mean uh, nothing to you, but if something interesting to look up on this holiday break, um, whether you celebrate, you're celebrating Hanukkah, uh, Christmas, Kwanzaa, or you just celebrating, um, like some of my Muslim friends celebrating, um, nuptials, um, and anniversaries and stuff, wedding anniversaries. Hey, you know, if it's Tuesday, you know what I'm saying? If it's just another Thursday for you, Hey, we met, you know, glad you made it to Thursday. Cause some people didn't, um, anyway, I just, you know, something to look up in this down period that we have, or this vacation period that we have um, to look into. I would also encourage you to watch Soul of the Game. I found it on YouTube. I, it's not, uh, unless I'm confused, it's not available in any of the streaming services, which is weird, but it is definitely available on YouTube for free. Um, I don't know how, for how much longer, but anyway, go watch Soul of the Game. Delroy Lindo, who again, that's, I feel like everybody knows who Delroy, every black person in the United States, for the most part, either knows Delroy Lindo by name or definitely knows him by face. Anyway, um, so, and, and also there, what's that, what's that man's name? The, the guy that played Jackie Robinson, everybody knows who that is. I just can't call his name just now. Um, anyway, there's a bunch of stars in that, sh- in that, uh, in that movie. But anyway, you should watch it. Okay. So switching gears, I did see as the title of this episode suggests, I did see a uh, watch Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, and I'm glad that I did. Um, because I confronted something about myself that I have been avoiding, I think. And maybe it's the last vestige of my respectability politics. Um, I, I I'm hoping it's the last vestige and I want to be free of it. Um, But it's this idea. And I think I was talking about this two episodes ago um, where I was talking about the visage of Ma Rainey and remembering that when I watched Bessie, uh, the movie, the HBO movie, Bessie starring um, Queen Latifah as uh, Bessie Smith, who in, in real life was, a rival of some sorts to Ma Rainey. And in that movie, uh, uh, Monique playing, the comedian Monique playing um, uh, Ma Rainey. 
And I remember feeling, seeing Monique's version of Ma Rainey being gritty, but not too gritty, like still pretty, still, uh, yeah, still, still, yeah, still pretty and still palatable for me. Right. She's just a, a hard woman, but nevertheless palatable. But then I remember having this visceral response to uh, Viola Davis's version of Ma Rainey and what <clears throat> in this upcoming film and the trailers for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I remember thinking, this is grittier than I thought than I than than I've ever seen Ma Rainey played. And I don't know that I love. I don't know that I like it. And let's be real, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all because I didn't like. I didn't like that there was that you have this big woman, however you want to phrase it, however you consider big, but this plus size woman, makeup smearing, sweaty, gold teeth all in her mouth, brown skin, not looking super femme or pretty. Like she had a dress on, but like she wasn't super like soft and pretty. And I think I didn't like, I know I didn't like that. I didn't like it. And after having watched this film, I know why I didn't like it. And it's and it has everything to do with me wanting a black woman to look a certain way, especially a quote unquote big black woman. And I apologize if that offends you. I just grew up calling, you know, I'm a big woman. So I call myself big. I call other people big. I've always been plus size. I really don't like the term plus size. It seems weird. Like I'm, I'm not a fashion size. I'm just, I'm a big woman. Um... Anyway, but that's that's me. But again, I, I don't mean to offend anyone. Um, but yeah, so and I just grew up thinking and, and I love my parents, but I can remember both of my parents saying you can be big, but you don't have to be sloppy looking. And I think I've carried that. I've, I know I've carried that and I've internalized it. And so as a result, for the most part, I've you know, when I go out, I always try to be extra cute and stuff like that. And, I, and, and now that I'm thinking about it, and certainly ever after having watched this adaptation of an August Wilson play, which I did not know this was, um, but My Rainey's Black Bottom is an adaptation of August Wilson, Wilson play. Um, but anyway, well, of August Wilson play of, of My Rainey in this particular moment. Um, anyway, so it, it, it wasn't until I watched this that I likened my feelings about presentation of a bigger person, specifically, not just a bigger person, a bigger black woman specifically goes back to it. it, You can arguably say like, if you're brown skin, very brown skin and somebody's saying you pretty for a brown skin girl or you, you handsome for, well, nobody says you're handsome for a brown skin man. Most, most uh, the TV today they don't have a problem putting a, a dark skinned black man on TV and, and celebrating his beauty because he's beautiful. But we do have a problem celebrating a, a dark skinned black woman unless she's fine. And so anyway, but I'm talking about, I'm, I'm saying we, because I'm a part of that too. And I'm this movie, if nothing else, and it sounds silly, I recognize it to feel silly, but nevertheless, it, this movie has allowed me to confront that last little vestige of respectability politics, or I'm sure that I have others, 
but this particular vestige of respectability politics, and I hope I can bury it because my Rainy was who she was. I'm recognizing now and I'm reading more now. Ma Rainey was exactly who she was and she had gold teeth. She was brown skin. She was a big woman. She was she wasn't she wasn't prissy. She wasn't quiet. She didn't really too much handle herself in a, in a respectable quote unquote respectable way. That wasn't who she was. She was true to herself. And isn't that what we want everyone to be? True to yourself, not true to somebody else's image of you. She had gold teeth. She had gold teeth and a and a big smile. And she enjoyed life. And she wasn't a cover girl. And I remember even seeing a statement. I read it. I can't remember where I was reading it about her. But having watched this, I immediately started to look up her. And to be honest with you, I feel ashamed. I'd seen a picture of Bessie Smith before. I'd never seen a picture of Ma Rainey before. I knew who she was. But I had never seen a picture of her before, quite frankly, because I never bothered to look. But when I looked, I was like, oh, so Viola is an actor, like an actor, actor. Because what I also learned was that there aren't too many images of Ma Rainey in comparison to Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith has hundreds of images floating around there that you can find even today. But Bessie Smith only has a few. And so, which meant that, that Viola had to work real hard, real hard, um, to be able to capture this woman. And I'm quite sure she had notes from August Wilson and that play and things like that, and from other actors who had played her um, and studied her, or at least, yeah. And, and, and again, I know August Wilson had put some time and energy into this thing. Um, but yeah, she had her work cut out for her. And so I've, it's, it's been 24 hours since I've watched it by the time I'm recording this. Um, but I'm obviously I'm recording this before the release of this thing, much, much, um, few days out from the release of this thing. Um, and I've had time to sit on her performance and while Chasmet, Chadwick Boseman did a wonderful job, and if that has got to be the, the last, from my perspective, my humble perspective, is that if that's got to be the last thing that you've done, he did a good deed. He did, he did a good thing. That's a good work to go out on. Um, because it's raw. Uh, Viola Davis did it. That woman did her job. She did a good thing. Because even though... What I will say is that throughout this movie, you found Ma Rainey difficult. But at the end of it, you respected her hustle. You respected why she was doing that stuff. Because in the grand scheme of things, for every little inch, every little finery or nicety that she ever got, you know she, she had to scrape that thing out. It wasn't given to her, which isn't, that's not um, admirable in any way, but it's just, it's more sad that she had to fight for those things that were just freely given to white artists of the time. Or the fact that white folks were into the blues, you know how, you know how it is. They were being um, musical tourists and were like just loving, loving it, eating you up, eating up, eating up your talent, but don't treat you with a lot of respect. They respect you, but not too much. 
And there's so many, there's so much of the historical context that Ma Rainey, the character Ma Rainey in this, in this uh, play exposed because then what you, so you watch this and then you recognize the time that she was moving and shaking. This was a black woman who had agency in the twenties and thirties, twenties and thirties. She had agent. She had her own car. She, she, now mind you, she had her own car because she wouldn't have been able to travel freely. Like um, Ma Rainey had her own vehicle. She had her own uh, locomotive. Uh, was it? A, did she have her own car? Tra- a locomotive, like a locomotive plus two cars for her traveling. I think she did. But be, the reality of it was that was the, it was it was luxury. It was luxurious to have those things, but it was also a necessity because how else was she and her van going to travel without being harassed, except if she owned the stuff that she was traveling in, which is a doggone shame. Um, you know, everybody, you know, is enamored with tour life now because you have buses and planes and all of that stuff. What did Drake do a couple of years ago? Bought, bought a plane, bought like a commercial plane or whatever. Like it's a flex now, but that wasn't, that was a flex, but it was also a necessity back then because she wouldn't be able to travel without having her own, um, period. Like nobody was going to travel to carry her here, there and everywhere, uh, as much as they wanted to use her talent. And so anyway, there's, so there's so much more that came out of that. Um, and I'm hoping to keep this episode under an hour and 30, but probably won't make it. So thank you in advance for listening to this thing while you're doing something else. Um, Again, I'm hoping that you have a break or at least you're if you do have to go into work that a lot of people aren't in there with you so that you can just just have the place to yourself and you can listen to this without headphones. But no, yeah. So understanding what she went through and I'm sad to say as much as I'm grown, I still got a lot more growing to do. Even in my big age, I still got a lot more growing to do because. I just I hate that I I did the one of the reasons why I was reluctant to watch this film, even though I knew I needed to watch it. Like, what was, I, what was I going to do, not watch it? That wasn't an option. But one of the reasons why I was reluctant to watch it is because I didn't want to see Ma Rainey be gritty. And and Viola Davis, I see my grandmother in this portrayal, even though she wasn't, my grandmother was a tough woman, my, my father's mother. She was a tough woman. I see... I see some of my grandmother on my father's side. I see some of my grandmother on my mother's side. I see women in my family that maybe I've colored in too pretty of a brushstroke. You know, I've, their lines are a little too straight. Their line, their 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 seams are a little too perfect. Because the reality of it is, how in the world? I've I've shared this before. <laughs> How are we going to have women in my family who have poisoned men? And I'm being, I'm just being blunt now, who have poisoned men because they were abusive to them and they had no other recourse. And this is serious. I'm not joking. I have have family members, three generations removed, who to get their husband to do right and stop, get away from abusive men have poisoned them, not to death, but to grave sickness. Um, I have... That's on my daddy's side. On my mama's side, I have women on my mama's side who have picked up that bat and said, come on here. 
you want to be about it, then let's really be about it. You you like baseball, so do I. Let me knock this thing out the park. Let, with, let me let me use your head. You know what I mean? Like without being too graphic, but like, and if I'm being these stories haven't been hidden from me. They've been told to me, but I think I just colored them with too pretty of a brush a brushstroke. Clean up the seams a little too tightly. You can't have those instances and then have everybody in your family super perfect and, 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 and having this image of perfection. That just wasn't the, that just wasn't it. College educated or not, that's just not that's not what happened. That's not reality. And so. And so I'm, I'm trying to shed that image of, you know, not wanting to see an imperfect black woman because Ma Rainey was very imperfect. And Viola does a good job of showing her and all her flaws in this movie and I appreciate it now and and having 24 hours between me watching the film that when the rolling credits began and I'm speaking now I can truly say that I appreciated it I I knew something was changing in me at the end of that thing but I do appreciate her portrayal of her and I'm starved for more information now um and and one more but if Viola does not win an Oscar in the world that woman, show can act. She show can act. That's all I can say. That's all, that's all I can think to say at the moment. She show can act. Um, so yeah. So I, I know that this film is about a number of different things. It's not just about Ma Rainey. So it's about a number of different things. And so I will talk about it because let's be clear. Viola Davis did her thing, but so did Glenn Turman. So did, um, obviously, so did Chadwick Boseman. And the guy that played, um, there's, a, there's a guy called Coleman Domingo that I had never heard of before, but I appreciated how he played in it. And then, of course, Michael Potts, who I believe everybody knows Michael Potts. Michael Potts, um, what, was, what do I remember him from? Uh, I've seen him in a ton of stuff. Hold on, let me just see his, his, where do I remember seeing him? I mean, he's been in a lot of books, but I, for, I feel like I've seen him. True Detective. Is it True Detective that I remember seeing him? Dag, I can't remember, but I feel like I've seen, he's like an every, something like an everyman, a little bit. He's almost like um, Bokeem Woodbine or, to me, he's almost like Bokeem Woodbine or uh, Tiny Lester Smith, the, the God rest his soul, uh, who played Debo. Like, in a lot of stuff, not necessarily the lead, but in a lot of stuff, and you know who he is. Um, and so, yeah, so there are other actors in there too, but the main ones um, are obviously Chadwick Boseman, Viola Davis, um, Coleman Domingo, Glenn Turman, and Michael Potts. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm going to spend more time talking about the play itself, the, the adaptation itself, um, some of the metaphors that I caught, some of the metaphors that I caught. Um, and I'm sure smarter people than me who are more sophisticated can probably break down more of the layers to what August Wilson was saying in this play, in this portrayal of my of Ma Rainey. But anyway, so I'll just talk about the film. Hopefully you have an opportunity to watch it. It is on Netflix. Um, and you know, get somebody's password. If you don't have Netflix yourself, you, you know how to do that by now. 
Um, but yeah, definitely watch this thing. And then also after you do that, watch there, there are at this point, because it has recently come out, there's more, there are more documents. Oh, she had to put on weight. Huh? Anyway, I'll go into this in a second, but there are, there are, um, articles about Ma Rainey now that are floating around, um, and probably have been for a few months now, but anyway, read those. Uh, and then, yeah, if you don't want it to be spoiled for you, stop this episode and watch the movie and then come back to it if you wish, or if you don't care, go ahead and, and listen to this, um, this episode in the next segment. I'm going to try to keep it brief, but I'm gonna be honest with you. This might be a little bit of a long one. Um, so you might need to listen to it in parts. Okay, but in the next segment, it's all about um, the the particulars about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Netflix's new film, um, and Chadwick Boseman's last. Okay, let's get into it. Let's get into it. So, um, it is... As it, as it relates to the, the particulars of, of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it's a, uh, it's a current film, 2020, it was released this year. Um, it was actually released on the 18th on Netflix. It, yes, I don't believe it was released anywhere else. It was released on Netflix. It's a Netflix production, or at least that's who picked it up. Um, and it was directed by George C. Wolfe, who is an acclaimed hold on, let me not talk about his accolades. Um, he'd been around for a minute. Um, yeah, he's a playwright and acclaimed, um, theater, uh, director of, of theater and films. Um, hold on, let me tell you what he's directed because that matters. Um, Angels in a, oof, Angels in America. M- the l- m- l- Angels in America, the Millennium Approaches. So I wonder, did he have any input on the, mm, I would have loved to have seen that in 93, um, or before he was, clearly he was doing it before 93, um, but everybody's seen, or many folks at this point, if you watch a lot of film and, and things like that, or film adaptations of screen plays, ooh, that makes a lot of sense, hold on, I'm gonna go back to it, I just had a point, or I had a, I had a thought, but if you've watched a lot of, of movie adaptations, Tations of plays. You've probably watched Angels in America, um, that HBO, what was it, four-part series? Four, six-part series anyway, um, that was done very well. Um, uh, Emma, what's it, Emma, not Emma Stone. What's that name? That's the woman that played in Emma. Anyway, I don't know my white British actresses like that, um, but she's very, a very acclaimed um, English, white English actress. Um, and then of course, Meryl Streep was in it because everybody knows who's Mer- who Meryl Streep is. Um, Jeffrey Wright was in it. Who else that you would know? Oh, Al Pacino, excuse me. Um, Al Pacino was in it. Um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. You know that movie. I'm not talking about that anymore. But anyway, everybody has seen, um, Angels in America, which was a really great adaptation, in my opinion. I didn't realize it was a screen. Oh, I know. yes, I did. I knew it was a, uh, a play. I didn't know who had who might have directed it or when it was running. And so to know that George C. Wolfe has been a um, playwright and director and, and, and uh, of 
uh, adaptations uh, of plays and then movie adaptations of plays makes sense here because my very first, before I knew anything, before I knew that August Wilson, um, this was, this, My Rady's Black Bottom was, uh, the film was an adaptation of the screen, uh, um, of the uh, play. It felt like it was a play to me because why else, with the imagination and the budget of, of a film, why would you place it in essentially the same scene? It's just different configurations of the same scene. And I was like, oh, this is a play. Clearly, this is a play adaptation. It felt like one because, again, you're in the, you're just running around in the same spot, just different configurations. So anyway, but I was like, okay, well, this is kind of cool because, you know, I like that. I like seeing all the corners of every possible room in this small space because it gives you a sense of feeling trapped. And I think that was the point for a number of different reasons. Um, it was obviously a metaphor for society, black people being trapped in the box that is the, the uh, America. And, you know, some of us being able to free ourselves of it, but some of us not wanting to be free of it because of the sacrifices up until that point that ourselves and our ancestors have made and blah, blah, blah. I don't think it was that deep. I don't think it was intended to be that deep, but I did do think that it was meant to also represent the box that black Americans found themselves in and even until this day find themselves in. But nevertheless, um, so yeah, it felt like a play, but it felt like a really good adaptation of a play to me. Like they did the best with what they had and movie budgets being what they are, you can really explore all the four corners of a single space. Even though this wasn't a single space, you get it. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, so I was impressed with so many things. And I'll go into a very particular piece that I was, that I was impressed with. But hold on, let me, let me hasten on. Um, Because again, I'm not trying to do this. I'm not trying to make this episode two hours. So let me get back. So George uh, C. Wolf uh, directed this thing. The budget was 20 to 30 million, which is surprising to me because we don't typically know the budget of um, of Netflix films. And we certainly never know how much it actually earned. What, what we do know is that this got really great publicity, unlike some other films. And I know I talked about that, but anyway, unlike some other films that Netflix releases. They are not exempt that, that, you know, you did this one right, but I'm still side-eyeing you because there's so many more black and brown projects that you really need to pay real close attention to. Um, like right now, my, not timeline, but my home screen of Netflix is pretty black and brown, which I appreciate, but I don't know if it's just black and brown because it's me or are they pushing like there's this uh, horror film. Um, I think it's a Korean horror film. I have to pay it. I have to look at it to be for sure. But um, but I I watch a lot of horror these days, or at least I have a penchant for um, um, Asian horror films because it tends to be, you know, it tends to be something different than what I've seen. And I like movie starring people of color. Um, anyway, so, but I don't, I don't know what they're doing, but I did, I do appreciate the run up to my rainy's black bottom. Anyway, um, I think the only other thing that you need to know is that Denzel Washington was one of the co-producers of this thing. Um, 
yeah, and good to know. Um, um, IMDb has a 7.3 out of 10, which is decently high for IMDb ratings. Um, 99% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, 88% um, on Metacritic, however they rate it. And then 90% of Google users, including myself, liked this film. Um, okay, so let me just give it to you straight. So again, we have Chadwick Boseman as um, Levy. I, I want to I want to pronounce his word his name differently, but it's Levy. Viola Davis is Ma Rainey. Um, for all intents and purposes, Ma Rainey. Everyone knows Ma Rainey was um, at the very least she was bi, and so she always had a, a woman companion. Um, and so the woman companion in this movie is Taylor Page, who plays Dusty, Dusty May. Um, and we, but we, we see her, but it's like, she's a vehicle for the storyline of advancing the plot for Levy and oh, mostly Levy, even though she's there for Ma. Um, Coleman Domingo is Cutler, Glenn Turman is Toledo. Um, Michael Potts is slow drag. Jeremy Seamus is our Irving, um, who again is essentially a vehicle for moving the plot along. And the last person that I'll mention that's significant, uh, for real is Sylvester, who is played by Dusan, Dusan, Dusan Brown. Anyway, so there, like I said, there are other folks who are cast in this thing. You should look it up. I'm not going to talk about them. But the synopsis of this thing is tensions rise when trailblazing blues singer Ma Rainey um, and her band gather at a recording studio in Chicago in 1927. So a couple of things. This movie, yes, the premise is a single day, a recording session for Ma Rainey and her blues band um, to in a single day on a hot day in Chicago. Um, There clearly were some changes. I think the original play was set at night or at least it went into the night. Um, And that's how tensions were flaring because, you know, things were just dragging on and on. But instead of being set at night, this thing was set in the day in the hot, one of the hottest days in Chicago back in the twenties. And, you know, there was no air conditioning, so it was just dog hot. And so, you know what happens when, when we get hot, we get irritated because we want to seek comfort and we have short fuses. So anyway, so, and I apologize if you start to hear my um, radiator going, it's old um, in this particular, actually they're old all over this house, but in this, in this particular room that I'm in, it's kind of loud. So we'll just see if I can get some relief from that sound, but moving on. Um, so yeah, so it's over a single day, right? And a couple of things we, we get acquainted with in this thing. Um, throughout this day. Number one, just a little reminder, Chicago was one of the, the final destinations for many black folks escaping the deep South during the black, the, uh, black migration, the, what do you call it? The great, great migration, not black migration, great migration, um, for rich, every black person I know even if you're, if you were born and raised in the South, you got every black person that is, that has spent, that is born and raised in the United States has been touched by uh, the great migration in some way, fashion or form. Um, my dad 
My daddy is a product of the Great Migration. My mother is not necessarily a product of the Great Migration, but again, her family has been touched. And she's not necessarily a product, but she was kind of a part of it. Well, no, she she is kind of a product of it in that they didn't, the, the, the family itself didn't necessarily originate out of the Deep South. They originated out of Virginia um, generations ago, Iowa, and then from Iowa, you know, across the way from Virginia. But um, nevertheless, they were a part of the pipeline, too, in, in terms of thinking about black people set, uh, lifting up root, typically the younger ones, uprooting and going to explore other parts of the, the country for a better opportunity. And, you know, this thing arguably, you know, you can Google it, but the Great Migration began in 1900s and, and depending on how you look at it, ended in the 70s. Um, now we kind of freely do our thing, but on mass, I'm talking about on mass uh, migration, um, where you start with generations, you know, a younger generation, and then somebody from a particular generation who happens to be a bit young, they go make a place, make a way, and then here come other people coming. Here come cousin, here come auntie, here come, you know, granddaughter, here come daughter or whatever, or son or have you. Anyway. So my, on my mama's side, um, they, Wichita, Kansas, and again, you go back to that episode that I recorded so many years ago out of Africa, Wichita, Kansas, I talk about the family there. But nevertheless, I think I also talk about in that episode the fact that my granddaddy, my mama's mama, um, was in the military and was stationed in, San, no, mama was born in San Bernardino, but she wasn't stationed there. Uh, Riverside? No, not Riverside. Oh, I can't call Contra Costa? No, I can't call it. That's where Daddy was born. Daddy was born in Contra Costa. I can't call where where he was stationed, my granddaddy. But um, nevertheless, family family set root there, right? And on my daddy's side, though they were they are um, from Louisiana by way of. The Carolinas, I can't remember which. I have to go back and look um, at the data. Um, I believe it's South Carolina. Um, though they're from the Carolinas, they're, they're from Louisiana and have been there for generations by way of uh, one, the Carolinas, which by way of the slave ship. But um, nevertheless, daddy ended up being born in Contra Costa, California, which was not super far from where mama was um, born. Um, and then spent many years on the army base with her parents, um, being the eldest anyway. Um, so yeah, but daddy's side of the family set more root in California. Um, and so we got a lot of family in the Oakland, the Bay area. Um, and then Texas, of course, cause you know, just skip over leaving where you're from to go where you, where you want to be. And then of course we got Detroit. We don't have too many people. I don't think anybody landed in Chicago. It was Kansas City and Detroit for the most part for my people. Um, on my daddy's side, yeah. And then on my mama's side, it was Kansas City kind of moving in and around there. But if you wanted to leave the Midwest, you went to California. That's just kind of the thing that happened. Black folk in the Kansas City area, if you were trying to leave, your leaving was was uh, Oakland. In and around, Oak, well, not necessarily Oakland, but definitely California and just spreading out there. Um, 
anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wrap this puppy up. I'm getting there quickly, but anyway, so let's get back. So in the film, what we are, what we're reminded of is the great migration. The fact that black folks aren't too many years removed by this point, even Ma Rainey herself, not too many years removed from the great migration or their own uh, migration story. And so you hear it in kind of the vibe of the, the people there, right? Nevertheless, they're here, they're moving and shaking, and they're still getting looks because regardless of them not being in the Deep South, you know, what we know is that racism don't have no location, baby. It's literally everywhere, especially in the United States. And so, you know, right off the bat, um, we see uh, Toledo and Slow Drag. Remember, Glenn Turman plays Toledo, Michael Potts plays Slow Drag. Toledo and Slow Slow Drag are getting off of a train um, walking down the platform in Chicago, getting ready to hit this session. Um, we also see, uh, Coleman, Coleman Domingo playing Cutler. Um, you know, essentially they, they go to this, what appears to be the doorway in this little alley, this doorway to a recording station. And they're the ones that they're, that are there first. And then we're also, um, um, introduced a few scenes later to Levy played by Chadwick Bozeman, who is out, you know, being a creep a little bit or not necessarily being a creep, but definitely feeling himself outside trying to holler at some girls. Um, not even anywhere near the recording studio. No, you get the sense that he's late and then the movie goes on and you recognize he is late. So essentially, you know that these musicians are here. They're part of the band. They're ready to play for Ma Rainey and Ma is, um, dragging her dog on feet you know she's gonna move when she get there and then you come to know that this is like the beginning of her establishing her dominance and even regardless of the portrayal uh the differences in the portrayal between Monique and Viola Davis um the one through line between both of their both of their portrayals is that Ma Rainey was always in charge and so throughout this play what you uh, throughout this movie what you get the sense of is that Ma Rainey Ma Rainey gonna be Ma Rainey. She gonna run, run it how she wants to run it. And then there's a moment where we get an explanation of why she's, why she's behaving the way she is because we come to know that she's just being, she's, she difficult. She's difficult by any other term. She is dragging her feet. She's not gonna move until she feel like it. She's not gonna sing until she feel like it. And she's certainly not gonna sing nothing. She, she's only gonna sing what she wants to sing. Um, and there's a reason for it. And we get the, under, we understand why that is at the very end. Um, maybe 20 minutes toward the end. Um, we see her giving an explanation to, um, is it Cutter? Yeah. yeah. We, we see her giving an explanation to Cutter why she's Cutler, why she's so, why she's so particular. And you get the sense that she's explaining herself only as just a reminder of something that Cutler already knows. Cutler knows it. Slow Drag knows it. Toledo knows it too. But uh, Levy doesn't really know, know it. Of all the musicians, it seems as if it goes like this. Toledo is the eldest. Slow Drag is the second oldest. Domingo uh, uh, Cutler is like middle age. And Chad uh, Levy is young. He's a youngster, full of spunk, got a lot of talent, got a lot of energy. Everybody's seen the, um, everybody has seen the the trailer at this point, 
where, you know, there, there's that line that he says, I'm going um, to tell the white man just what he can do. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have me a big band. I've been told I'm going to have me a band because um, I got, you know, I got style. I got flair. I got charisma. And so he's just like, he's just like basically using this as an opportunity to build up his name, get some, um, get some clout and then go on and, and, and do his thing with his big band. That's his plan. And he speaks about that throughout the entire film, that his whole purpose, his old modus operandi for being here is to use this as a way station to prop himself up to the next place that he's going in life, right? Where he, the greatness that he is aspiring to be. And so anyway, so, but everybody but, but Levy kind of understands why Maya is being the way she is. And so you recognize that when she sits down and explains to Cutler why she's behaving the way she do, that it's simply because she knows how her actions are coming across. More than that, she knows how in trying to give, tell the white man where he can go and make sure that she gets hers, she is also singeing when she's throwing the Molotov cocktails at these uh, white people, specifically in this context, the record producers and, and, and all of that, while, and, and even her own manager, while she's throwing the Molotov cocktail at them, she recognized that, there's, there's, that her band is getting singed and anybody in her way is getting singed just a little bit, um, sometimes even more than a little bit. And so it feels like a sense that toward the end, when she gives this monologue about why she's doing what she's doing, the fact that these white people are using her voice, like she spells it out. She's like, I know these white people. The minute, the minute I put my voice on wax, I have no, they have no further interest in me. They just want to sell what I got. So while I got their attention, while I still have what they want, I'm going to get what I want. That's why I got my car. That's why I got my things. And again, what I was saying before, um, the, the, the through line between Monique's portrayal of Ma Rainey and Bessie and, and, uh, uh, Viola Davis's portrayal in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is because it is her insistence on having things her way is her insistence on owning things. You don't get the background of why she's doing what she's doing in Bessie because the movie's about Bessie, but, um, you do get this, you do get a little bit of a sense of, oh, she know how to do this. She know what she's doing and she's trying to ride that wave. And she also tried to tell Bessie, she tried to, to, uh, to school Bessie, but Bessie wasn't having it because Bessie was young and she was feeling herself. So Bessie went on and she learned the hard way that, oh, you got to hold on to this because these people just want you to tap dance anyway. They want what you got. They don't want you. And Ma knew that. And so in this monologue, she explains she breaks it down essentially that they want what I have. They don't want me. I'm not particularly attractive. I'm, I'm big, you know, for, by their stand. I'm, I'm big. And in this context, big means not attractive. Right. So I'm already not the right size. I'm already, you know, not the most beautiful person. You know, I don't, I'm not projecting the image of beauty that they want. So I'm going to do me. I'm going to do me and I'm going to get mine because I have this voice. And in fact, Again, another reason why I like this portrayal is because after I watched this thing, I started looking into Bessie. Again, I told you I hadn't seen an actual picture of Bessie. Or not Bessie. Oh, my Lord. I hadn't seen a picture of Ma Rainey before. And I don't know what I thought she looked like, but I didn't think she looked like that. And so after having seen that picture and after having read uh, the comments that people said that Bessie had said um, about herself and then just about her talent, 
it makes sense that Viola would play her as gritty as she was because, again, my Rainey reminds me of my my, my daddy mama in, in some ways in that, you know, she she was a tough woman. She was a tough woman and she behaved a certain way to get where she needed to get. And even my aunt, who looks like a spitting image of my grandmother, in a lot of ways in, this, in the political circles that she ran in, you know, she's since retired, but like there's this thing where, and you can argue this, but there's a, there's this thing where you got to be as a black woman, you got to be a little bit harder and so be it. You got to play this. You, you're either going to run over or be run over and you can work that out on your own. I'm not going to argue the merits of playing games and and doing certain things because if I'm honest black people tap dance and play games in different ways our whole lives and it's it's the fortunate few that feel comfortable in their own skin not to do any of that and to go against the grain and in many and sometimes they pay for it but sometimes they pay for it only for a little while and then that thing works out for them so that they can hopefully turn around and pave the way for somebody else not to tap dance and and play that game because it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Uh, code switching and all of that, it's exhausting. And I pray that no one ever has to feel like they, code switching is not unique to black folks. And I know I'm getting off track, but po- but it's not unique to black folks, but daggone it. I feel like we're taught to do it as a survival mechanism and I don't wanna have to survive in that way. And I don't want my kids to survive in that way. And I don't want my niece, cause I don't have kids right now. I don't have, I don't want my niece to feel like she has to do that. To feel like she has to shrink herself or to be something else or to be extra hard so that you can get my, you can get, she can get somebody's attention. Anyhow, um, where was I going? So anyway, I, I see, I see my relatives, black women in my family, um, in, in these portrayals. And I understand why Bessie did what she had to do, especially in 1927. How many black women in America can you look to that had their own? had their own vehicles. She had a locomotive. She had a car. <clears throat> the locomotive back in the 20s, in the 20s, having a locomotive, locomotive was the equivalent of having a private plane. Like a lot of people got it these days, but like not a whole lot of people, including white people had that in the 20s in the United States. It just, it just wasn't, shoot, globally, it just wasn't a thing, right? So now she got her own train. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> or at least not a ton of people had it, right? If you had the means, you had it. But anyway, so you get a glimpse of, she, she sits and she explains why she do what she do, basically, why she act, how she, that, that's the, the thing in the, um, in the other room. Anyway, she gives a sense of, she gives a sense of why she do what she do, and I appreciated that. Because up until this point, Ma has been a tyrant, dragging her feet, dragging other people around, talking to them in any old kind of way, including making these white people tap dance for her. Um, and there were white men, let's be clear. There were, they, 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 anyway, there's a whole lot of social commentary in this whole thing, but for, for this context, the people in charge, the people who had the power were white men. Let's not get it twisted. These were white men who were jumping at her will right? The entire movie, the entire movie, they were jumping at her will. There's a little bit of a twist at the end that I'll get to in a second, but let me hasten on. So that's, that's her storyline. And the storyline for Slow Drag, Cutler, 
and uh, what's Toledo. Slow Drag Cutler in Toledo is just, hey, we here in support of, of mom. We know what she's on. We know she's can be difficult. We just doing our thing because this is better than working on a railroad, being a porter. Um, actually, no, they, they didn't even go that far. What they did say is that in so many words, I have freedom here that I would not be afforded anywhere else, even though we up here in Chicago. I know the game. We know the routine. So let us just, you know, get on how we live. Let's, we having fun right now. Let's continue to have fun. Even in our age, let's continue to have fun. Um, and so it, you don't get a sense of complacency. What you get a sense of is I know where I'm at. I know where my place is and I'm going to stay in it. Because as long as Ma Rainey is still bringing in these dollars, as long as Ma Rainey is still bringing in these opportunities, that's where I'm going to be. That's where we at. That's where we at with ours. So, you know, you have throughout the movie, which again is a play, throughout the movie, you have different pearls of wisdom being thrown out by Toledo. Definitely throughout the entire thing, Toledo's just throwing out jewels. And sometimes you're laughing. Sometimes you're like, do what? Um, specifically with Levy, so most of the time, Levy is just like, Toledo, what is you talking about? You, you waxing poetic out there. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Toledo is really out there laying some real fine jewels that we should all be paying attention to. Like basically waxing poetic about what is this thing that we doing here? What is this? How are, are we paying attention to what we're putting in our bodies? Are we paying attention to what we're putting in our minds? Like he was a... <laughs> He like borderline Hotep before Hotep was a thing, right? But in essence, what he represents was the man who's lived a while, the person who's lived a while and has seen some things and would like you to pay a little bit more attention, if you please, to what's going on around you. At least have your eyes open. Don't be asleep at the wheel sort of thing. But of course, he gets laughed at a couple of times. Why? Because it's it's uh, an analogy for life, if we're being honest, like... You know, it's it's I appreciate how many flowers that that Dionne Warwick is getting right now on social media. But let's be clear. A lot of times our American society, this society throws away the wisdom and the energy and the just the beauty that is people who've lived to be in their 70s. Now, mind you. Everybody has a time and a place. Let's be clear. Not every, not every 70 year old and 80 year old needs to be in in politics, right? That's just, that's not me being ageist. That's just me saying that sometimes, some, sometimes there does need to be some, sometimes you need to sit down, right? Sometimes you need to sit down and learn again. Sometimes if you, you know, you've got the opportunity, you need to be propped up to be able to do something new. And I don't think we make a lot of space for young people to come in, except the fact that they are young, right? Like we celebrate youth, but we don't really celebrate the energy behind the youth. We just celebrate the look of youth, right? So on both sides, we, we celebrate age and, oh, you're so wise, but we don't listen. Um, not all the time. And then when we have an opportunity to hear something new, hear a fresh take on a thing and use that, that um, energy to match it with the wisdom that we've acquired to like propel this new future forward. We don't do it. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I don't have my, I don't have the answer as to why. It's just a thing that I noticed that 
we tend to be super ageist in that we don't really, we don't really, it's like we're ageist in that we don't really respect either the old or the young in a way that makes sense, which is dumb. But anyway, I think it's, it's, I think we have a representation of that. And I don't know if this was August Wilson's intent, but it's definitely something that I got from this adaptation that we really don't have a good sense of the balance of how to listen to both. If you're going to, if you're going to break it down to, to two different um, lived experiences, we don't have, we as a society, probably even globally, but specifically to uh, American culture, we don't really have, as an American culture, we don't really have a way to listen to both. Black culture, we're, we're closer. Black culture, we are a little bit closer because that's just a, uh, how we were raised in many and many cases. Um, but as a culture, we really don't have a way to, to, to support both voices at the same time. It's either propping one up and smashing the other or, sma- you know, it's propping one up and smashing the other is what we tend to do. And so anyway, you get a sense that throughout this thing that, you know, there's the push and pull between the wisdom of age and the confidence of youth. And right now what ends up happening is the confidence of youth l- ends up looking like foolishness in this in this film. And and then it has a tragic end. So anyway, so what we know is at the end of this thing, Ma Rainey records the songs that she wants to record, period, point blank, because she's going to do that, right? Everybody gets their, their thing together, right? Well, for the most part. And then we have Toledo, not Toledo. Then we have Levy. So again, I've talked about Ma Rainey and her purpose. I've talked about for the most part, the, the three wise men, if you could look at it that way, in Toledo, Slow Dragon, Cutler. And then there is Levy. And Levy keeps going back and forth with Cutler, which represents, in my opinion, middle age. And, and there, like I said, there are smarter people than me who've broken down this whole play. And even August himself has broken down this play to tell you what you're supposed to, what he intended for you to take out of it. And, and then, you know, have discussions about what you ultimately did take out of it. But for me, you know, Cutler represents middle age and Cutler and Levy go at it. Largely because Cutler is like, you're just not respectful. You got all this energy and it's anger is what it is. And it ends up coming out in the most disrespectful ways possible. We didn't, we didn't do nothing to you. Can't you see that you are on the coattails of somebody who, despite being very difficult, is in fact not only putting food on your table and allowing you to make dumb purchases, like in the middle of this thing, he goes and buys, he blows his whole week's pay on these brand new shoes. So not only is Ma allowing you the opportunity to to blow all of your money on something that you would have had to work months for, all you doing is blowing a week's worth of pay on, um, but she's also giving you this opportunity to, to experience more and do more. Why don't you just sit and get you some, learn you a little something or three. Um, and so that's, to, that's, that's Cutler's perspective. Levy on the other hand is like, he's no, I want mine. I want mine right now. Now we learn, we don't know what motivates Cutler beyond understanding that he like Slow Jack and Toledo understand what they're on. Toledo, uh, Cutler has a close relationship with Ma Rainey. And in fact, I can't remember if I said this or not, but Ma Rainey in explaining her how, why she's behaving the way she do, she's talking to Cutler. 
they're closer in age and also like it just feels like there's this kinship he also feels like the the band leader whereas she's the singer and it's her band he's the band leader he makes sure that everybody falls in line to what ma wants and again that's probably another reason why he and levy go at it so hard um because you know color knows the order of things um, and not just in the songs, but he knows the order of things. He knows the pecking order. And Levy is challenging that in every way. Again, you know, he's got this confidence. He, his whole thing is he's going to be a band leader. Why does he think he's about to branch off and be a band leader? Because he can play like nobody's business. And he is talented. But the other reason why he feels like he's about to branch off and be a, get a band together um, and, and do records is because he's been told by the very same white men that are recording um, Ma Rainey's album, that he that, that he's going to have success because he plays so well, right? So we get a sense of him feeling like he's on the cusp of getting what Ma has, and he's going to be even bigger. And even there's a point where Levy says, I'm going to be just like Ma. I'm going to be better than Ma, right? Or some some something to that effect. Anyway, so... So, yeah. Um, so anyway, so we, we get the sense very early on that he's a little bit disrespectful, a little bit uh, cavalier, very cavalier. But then you start as the as the play moves on, as the movie moves on, you get the sense that he's very reckless. And there's a reason why he's reckless. It's not just him being flippant. There's something to this. And then you come to know that the something is that he's had a very hard life, harder than any than most in the room. Um, you know, he, there's this whole story that I won't even go into, but like some tragic things happened to his family when they were on the cusp of getting more for themselves and, you know, upward mobility, something happened, which invariably something always happens in, and as life goes on. But like this in particular was pretty standard for the twenties in that black folks tried to have, there was some angry racist white people that would try to take. And so there's, there's this particular story that's uniquely heartbreaking, um, but an old one, an old and not actually very unique story that happened and you just have to watch it to get it. But anyway, so, so yeah, so tragedy essentially is the thing that's fueling, fueling, um, Levy to do, to achieve stardom. It's clear that you, you get the sense that he's maybe in his twenties, um, maybe younger than that, because the way Chadwick Boseman played him, like even Chadwick, even though Chadwick was in his 40s, it's clear that Chadwick's playing him young. Um, and he was also dumb, naive, because what he didn't know that Ma Rainey knew is that you can't ever trust in this context. You can't ever trust these white people. You cannot trust these white men specifically who are smiling in your face, talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got anything you want. You got it. Anything you want. You got it. Don't ever confuse that with them having respect for you. Don't ever confuse that. And she never did. And mine never did. The problem in this thing is in this one day recording session that drug on it, it appeared not just like the, the daylight hours, but it drug through the evening was that in, in puffing up him and being so puffed up um, and so sure of his talent that he forgot the principal thing 
the, the one thing that Ma Rainey never forgot, and she indeed ended up explaining, which was that they don't respect you, baby. They respect that talent. And the minute that they have that talent and then they can sell it independent of you, they're gonna. And so what ends up happening? The, very, the thing that you think happens absolutely happens, but I won't tell you exactly what happens because you need to watch it because we want to boost up those screens and make sure that a lot of people are watching this thing. Um, but yeah, so Levy gets played. Levy gets played in a very specific way. And then as a result of being played, what ends up happening? He takes his frustration out on the boys and the, the men in the band, right? He takes it out on the band. And so even though throughout this whole thing, um, Levy is going at it with Cutler. He ends up taking shots at all of them. And then he has a last final standoff with, um, with uh, Sl- uh, not Toledo. And again, I won't tell you what happens between him and Toledo. But what I will say is throughout this whole thing, um, they did a really good job of, despite being in a big building and despite having the freedom to walk outside, um, Levy is always in a room, somehow or another, looking as if he wants to get out of it. He's always appearing to be trapped. And in fact, in their rehearsal room, it's down in the basement, their rehearsal room where they're just trying to warm up and get their thing together, there's a door that apparently leads outside, but to where exactly, we don't know. But Levy is always trying that door and trying to open it. And for the life of me, it will not open, right? And, and he keeps going back to it as a sense of, and he always goes back to that door specifically when he's his most frustrated, right? When he's, he feels his most trapped, he tries to open that door and it never quite works until the very end scene. And this is what I will say. One of the very last scenes, not the end scene, but like in the fourth act toward the, the middle, he finally gets that door open. No, not toward the middle, toward the end. He finally gets that door open, but the door leads to nowhere. The door leads up, but there's no stairs up. It's just, it's just another place. It was, it's like, it was like the door was added as an afterthought or an opportunity for you to stand out and go take a smoke, but you can't actually walk anywhere. Um, and it's like, and it's like you, you want relief, you want a sense of freedom, but you're not even free because you're trapped again. And I think. I think if I if I had to really think about it, but not look at any other uh, any scholars and, and their adaptation of or and their interpretation of what August Wilson meant. And if I never looked at, at what August Wilson's um, thoughts about that particular scene, I would guess that because Levy is trapped for a number of different reasons, he's trapped by his ambition. He wants to be so successful he can taste it. And as a result, he's not patient enough to wait for the right opportunity to express it and to be able to protect his craft. He's also trapped by the memories of the terrible things that happened to his family and that even though he's miles away from it, he still cannot escape the trauma that he's already faced as a child. And until he does that, he's not ever going to be free of it, right? Um, And then he's also trapped because he keep writing checks that his behind can't cash. Like he always talks that big talk about to to Cutler, to Toledo, to Slow Drag. But at the end of the day, they're his closest allies. 
Like they give him chance after chance after chance after chance. And in this particular moment, when he walks outside, he's blown it with them, like completely blown it with them. Like this is the millionth time that he's disrespected them, them this day. And it's like, he doesn't, you get the sense that he doesn't want to disrespect them. But at the same time, he, it's like, because he's got all this pent up energy and anger, he, he doesn't know what else to do except to express it in frustration at them. And so he's trapped in so many different ways. And he, it feels like he just want to jump out of his own skin and start anew, but he can't. Right. And so I appreciate that trap door um, because you get the you you when you pay attention to Toledo, you get short of breath. You get excited. You get angry or anxious. I certainly did because I'm like, every time he got on a screen, I felt uncomfortable. Why did I feel uncomfortable? Because I felt like he wasn't at rest with himself. He wasn't at peace with himself. He was seeking peace and wasn't going and wasn't getting it nowhere. And as a result, he was always he was unpredictable. And that made my, you know, in the context of this watching a film, it made me uneasy because I'm like, what is he about to do now? And so, of course, when the shoe drops, it drops in a way that I wasn't necessarily expecting at all. I've never seen this play before in my life. So I hope it will be a surprise to you too. Um, I was not expecting it to go the way it went. So definitely go watch the thing to get it. But yeah, so the final scene, I will tell you the final scene only because it is so, like everybody knows this to be true that Black people, Black Americans, I only speak for Black, speak about Black American experience. Black Americans create a thing and then we make it fun and we make it good. And then somebody, usually a white man or somebody, somebody that is not reverent of the art, doesn't respect the art, doesn't respect the energy that went into crafting the art, doesn't just want to appreciate it for what it is, but wants to take it and mold it and, and, and put it and make it their own. But like in doing that, they bastardize it. You know, the, the record that they spent all day making and they had all of these emotions around and and Ma Rainey fought this, that and the third. And even um, Levy contributed in a very significant way. Um, they turn around and and sell it to a, a, a all white orchestra that that takes the life and soul out of it. Now, this is not in the play. This is in the movie. But they take the, the life and soul out of that thing. And then the same producers that were kissing Ma Rainey's behind and telling you, oh, oh, you got this thing that we want so well, you know. They sit over here, you know, glad handing these um, people who are playing it in this very bland way. Because at the end of the day, these people didn't care about Ma Rainey. These people didn't care about Levy. These people didn't care about Slow Drag or Toledo or Cutler. They cared about what they were giving them. And the minute that they gave them what they wanted, it didn't matter what the heck happened to them. They had what they wanted. And isn't that true in a lot of places? Isn't that true in a lot of, in a lot of ways today? Isn't that true? Isn't that still true? The people that don't respect what you do, that don't respect your craft, that don't respect the energy and the, 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 the energy and the time that went into doing it, isn't that true that they just take it and throw you aside? Which is why all the more reason for you to have protections against yourself and to walk in this thing with your eyes open about what you're doing and who you're doing it with. Anyway, so yeah, so 
so yeah, I, everybody acted their tails off. And I know that there are some folks that did not appreciate um, Viola's depiction of my Rainey. I'm not one of those. I do. I, I Again, I've talked about already some of the things that I have to break down. My own biases, my own uh, respectability politics that I'm getting over to really look at her for who she is. And even though it's an exaggeration, we never truly know Ma Rainey. Not, not truly. Um, I appreciate Viola for not... Girl, did they, what they say? She put on... What she put on? 80 pounds? Viola put on 80 pounds, which I would not recommend folks to do. That's dangerous. Like, there is no safe way to gain that much weight. And then because... You know how it is. Like, you know, if she's a star. She's going to want that 80 pounds off. So... You know, there. even if you eat well and exercise well, the reality of it is it would probably take over a year to put that poundage on and then probably another year to take it off. But she's not going to wait no year. And I, I've seen pictures of her. She, she don't weigh that no more. So my thing is, like, unless she started instantly after filming, dieting and, and no, not even dieting, but literally changing her food habits and exercising and not over-exercising. Like, I just don't see that she did that healthy. Now, now I'm quite sure she'll swear up and down that she did. But, like, it's not healthy for you to gain weight quickly in a short amount of time and then lose it in the same amount. Um, my doctor told me that. Um, anyway, <laughs> but, yeah, so I just pray for her health. But I thought she was wearing a um, padding. I honestly did. But then if you look at it, like, I'm, I'm not trying to be crass or anything like that, but her breasts look saggy McSag-sag. And they look real, real big. Well, they look saggy McSag-sag because they probably didn't put her in a support. She was clearly not in a support bra. She was just in something to hold them, but not necessarily to hold them and lift them up. Um, but yeah, it looked like, it looked like to me, at first I was like, oh, that, that padding suit is real good. And then come to find out that that was her. She had gained a lot of weight to look like, to, to like really, to really carry it well. Um... And yeah, I just, I don't, I don't approve of people gaining weight for a role, but I appreciate your dedication to the craft. Anyway, um, see there, I, I, I gotta, I gotta wrap this puppy up. Anyway, no, I, you can have your opinion about how she played it, but just let it sit with you. Just sit, just sit with the portrayal. I don't think she was, I, I'm not even going to put any words in your mouth. I'll let you read other people's understanding of it yourself. I appreciated, appreciated this interpretation because all you got to do is look at a picture of my Rainey. Look at her. Look at a picture of my Rainey and tell me that that woman didn't look like if you don't come correct, you better not have come at all. Tell me that she didn't look like she didn't take no stuff. Now, was, was Viola exaggerating? Of course she was exaggerating. It's a movie. It's a movie adaptation of a play. You're going to exaggerate. But I don't think she was too off the mark. She might have embellished a lot, but she wasn't off the mark, I don't believe. Um, I believe her character. So anyway, watch this thing. Get at the streams. Talk about it. Talk about it in a way that makes sense for you. Um, because I appreciated this film. If this was the, if this is the way, this is the last film that Chadwick had acted on, I appreciate him for it. Um, what a film. What a film. Anyway, um, 
yeah, so that's it for now. Um, let me just wrap this thing up. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new, thank you so much for listening for your very first time. Again, if you're doing something else, you cook and you um, doing a puzzle, whatever. I appreciate you for having me on in the background. You could have literally been listening to any other podcast, but you chose to listen to this one and I appreciate you. Um, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, happy uh, Merry Christmas, happy Kwanzaa. Well, Kwanzaa's coming back up by the time I by the time I get this uh, next week, next next episode, you know, we'd be marching on the brink. We'd be on the brink of a new year. Um, and so anyway, I'm not going to do what I did last year. I'm going to try to, you know, we'll see how I, what I feel like doing. I might just shoot the breeze. But anyway, um, yeah, I did not get any superpowers. Um, so sorry to tell you. Um so I think I'll just listen to Sun Ra all day. Anyway, if you know, you know. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, so just thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Um, like and subscribe. Favorably rate this thing. That's how ultimately at the end of the day, how you can help this show spread its reach, expand its audience. This is a this is a hobby for me and it will continue to be that. It's a great outlet for me that even when I'm super busy that I do this. Because it, it's it's a part of who I am now. Or not who I am, but it's a thing that I do to kind of de-stress. And, and when uh, up, until this thing becomes stressful for me and a chore to do, I'm going to keep doing it. So thank you so much for helping me to keep doing that. So spread, spread a light. If you want to donate to my show, is a really easy way to do that. You click the show link um, and you can donate. Even 99 cents will be a helpful contribution. But you can leave me a message. You can just share the episode. Because again, at the end of the day, that really, really does help. Spread the reach of this thing. Get more ears on this thing. Um, And yeah, so I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please watch My Rainy's Black Bottom. Um, And yeah, be kind to yourself. That's the last thing I'll leave you you with. Be kind to yourself. You got to be kind to yourself first. And you got to let you got to tell people how you want to be treated. So anyway, be kind to yourself. All right. Until next time.